Right, well, we are, as uh, John said, we have come to the end of Peter's second letter. Now, um, when you know that some big event is coming up in your life, it impacts the way you behave, doesn't it? I mean, let's say that you are, we're, we've got new neighbours moving in, uh, it looks like this week. If you were moving house next week, would you, would you spend your time the week ahead painting your nails or watching back-to-back movies of Lord of the Rings? The answer is no, you wouldn't. Would you? you would spend your week packing. Or let's just imagine a young couple who are getting married in a month's time. Do they spend that month apart, rarely talking to each other, only exchanging the odd text message in which they talk about the political situation out of Mongolia. <laughs> Is that what they do? No, they are inseparable. You can't keep them apart, and they, all they talk about is the wedding and planning for the wedding, probably much to their friend's annoyance. Okay, so look at verse 14 from today's reading. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things... Okay, now if you here last week, you know what Peter's talking about, verse 13. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter's saying the making of all things new is coming. It's approaching, Peter says. So verse 14 again, therefore, let the knowledge of what is coming impact your life now. You do that for moving house. You do that for getting married. So why not? for the approach of the end of the world. Of course, at least in the West, pretty much everyone would agree with that at the moment, wouldn't they, in our cultural moment? The environmental scientists tell us that the world is already burning, so decrease your carbon footprint, reduce your dependence on fossil fuel, live sustainably, buy locally, let the prospect of the world's end change your behaviour. Except if you uh, listen to uh, a number of commentators, and I don't think this is a surprise, that message, at least among the young, creates huge amounts of anxiety. Because, you know, in their own words, there's no planet B. Plus, even if temperature rises can be halted or reversed, one day in however many millions of years' time, the universe is going to cool down, and according to their model and life will cease to be, which means however hard you try, your efforts to save the planet, they don't just maybe increase anxiety among some, ultimately they're pointless. And Peter says not so, because we are not, as Christians, we are not waiting for the death of planet Earth. We are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, for the new creation that's going to arise out of this creation. And as you wait for that, Peter says, it can change your life in ways that go far deeper and have have far further reaching consequences 
than just changing your carbon footprint or choosing not to buy oranges that are imported from Spain. And it'll do it in ways that aren't just good for you, but are good for your neighbour and for the way you steward the earth. First point then, be diligent. Be diligent. Verse 14 again. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, when he's, um, when he's talking about spots and blemishes, he's not talking about acne. Okay? He's not talking about skincare products. He's talking about Christ and his character. You see, in the Old Testament, if someone had sinned and needed to atone for their sin, they would do that by sacrificing a lamb or a goat. But that animal had to be flawless. They couldn't, you know, the person who had sinned couldn't just take one of, you know, if he has a flock of goats or a flock of sheep, he couldn't just go and go, I know which one I'll take. I'll take the one that's maimed. I'll take the one that's diseased. I'll take the one that won't actually cost me anything because it's going to die anyway. I'll give that one to God. No, it had to be the best because sin is costly and what was unhealthy could not make healthy. What was damaged could not make whole. What was imperfect could not atone for sin. Only the spotless only the perfect could. But of course, you know, those sacrifices in the Old Testament were only ever signposts pointing forward to Jesus. Because in his first letter, Peter says that we have been redeemed. Our sins have been paid for by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, all of us are blemished. All of us are stained by sin. All of us are, are marked by it. We think stuff, we say stuff, we do stuff that we shouldn't, and we don't do stuff that we should, except for Jesus, because he was flawless in his thoughts, in his words, in his actions. He was flawless in his character. And at the cross, our sin and the stain and the shame of our sin, it was all counted to him. And he was blemished and he was bruised for us so that his righteousness might be counted to us. And Peter's saying, as you look to the future and as you look to the judgment to come, be diligent to remember that. Because you could look to the future and be filled with anxiety or filled with fear about the future judgment. And Peter's saying, no, be diligent to remember. Preach the gospel to yourself. You are made spotless and blameless in Christ. You have nothing to fear if you're a Christian. But also be diligent to become more like Christ. You see, remember from uh, last week how Peter calls us in verse 11 to live lives of holiness and godliness. But what does that look like? I mean, it would help to know, wouldn't it? 
I mean, when you are trying to achieve something, it helps to know what you are supposed to be aiming at. When you get in the car, you don't just drive randomly, do you, unless you're having a bad day. Okay, when you get in the car, it helps to know where you're heading to. Or students, you know, when you sit down to revise for an exam, it sure helps to know the subject that you are going to be examined in. So, when it comes to holiness and godliness and your character, what are you to be diligent about becoming? What are you supposed to be working on? You're to be diligent, Peter says, about becoming more like Jesus. And so it's not so much that Peter is bringing this letter to a close as he is summarizing what he has already said. Because if you remember, right, we spent a few weeks on this, right back at the start of the letter in chapter 1, verse 5, Peter wrote, for this very reason, make every effort, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, upon virtue, upon virtue, upon virtue. Be diligent to do that. Now, when you were a kid, okay, you probably experienced, I mean, maybe some of you still do, uh, you probably experienced your mother walking into your bedroom and saying something like, this room is not going to tidy itself. Okay, the same is true for our characters, isn't it? Same is true for our Christian lives. The same is true for becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like yourself. Living life with the new heavens and the new earth in mind and you growing in Christ-like character, that's not going to happen just by osmosis because you are not an amoeba. Okay, however sluggish you might feel this morning, you are, we are not amoeba, you know, just passively absorbing. Now, sure, that happens to some degree, interestingly, rarely in good ways. Instead, if you want your character to change, if you want to become more like the one whose righteousness is already counted to you, Peter says you've got to apply yourself to it. You've got to put in some effort to that. Now compare what he is saying to what the false teachers that he has been tackling in this letter were saying. Because in chapter 2 verse 13, he describes them as blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. In other words, they are the opposite of being spotless and blameless and without blemish. But they are saying, no, 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 you should become more like us. You know, throw off all of this fear about future judgment. Forget what Peter is saying about adding virtue to virtue. You don't need to do any of that. Do the opposite. Become more like us. And Peter is saying, no, become more like Jesus. But also, verse 14 again, be diligent to be found at peace. Now, you know, I've already said, and I think you know, this is not news, that thinking about the world's end can produce the opposite of peace. It can produce anxiety and conflict. But as you wait for the new heavens and the new earth, Peter is saying, you can experience peace in place of inner turmoil. You can experience peace in place of conflict, 
How? Why? Well, firstly, I'll give you three. Firstly, when you know that Christ is your righteousness, then, as I've said, the future, what Peter calls the place where righteousness dwells, has no fear for you. It's the opposite. It's like when we were singing that song about the hymn of heaven. You long for that day, the place where righteousness dwells. Secondly, knowing that your righteousness comes from Jesus and you don't deserve it, kills the self-righteousness in you that thinks that you are better than others. Maybe not least at this moment in those who might think differently from you about the environment and what we should be doing about that. And when your righteousness comes from Christ and not from what you think about these things, then that sure helps to reduce conflict. But thirdly, it'll also do a better job of changing the way that you use and consume resources. And it'll do a much better job of that than fear or anxiety ever will. Because how you feel about yourself when how you feel about yourself is tied up with Christ and his righteousness, it's not going to be tied up with your possessions or your experiences or, the, or your latest exotic holiday destination. So you will just naturally live more simply. And instead of using your resources in an endless cycle of consumption, seeking to prove yourself, seeking to feel good about yourself, as you grow more like Jesus, you will use your resources for the good of others, for your neighbor's good, because that is what Jesus did for you. So, firstly, be diligent. But secondly, count. Count, reckon, consider, verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, if you haven't experienced this yet, okay, one of the strange, thing, one of the strange things about Sue, my wife, is that she counts in Japanese. Okay, you know, we'll, we'll be doing, because she grew up there, okay, she, so she learned all her times tables in Japanese. So we'll be doing some mental arithmetic and she'll go, ha, ha. Yeah, I won't do the rest because you'll sack me for being politically incorrect. Okay, and I, you should be counting, and I'll, I'll be saying, I will not have a clue what she is saying. But, unsurprisingly, given it's Sue, her, the answer is nearly always correct. If it wasn't, I wouldn't have a clue. Okay, what if life was like that? What if you or someone else was getting the maths about life wrong? And you don't know it. We even have an expression for it, don't we? You know, taking two plus two and making five. You have this data about something. Maybe it's a conversation you overheard and you add that to somebody else's response and you're putting it all together, but you come to wrong conclusions. What if you could do that with life? And you take the data about life and the time since Jesus was on earth, and the time that he hasn't yet returned, or the length of your life, and you add all of that data up and you came to wrong conclusions. What if your maths was wrong? 
Well, that is exactly what these false teachers have been doing. They have been counting the days since Jesus was on earth and hasn't yet returned, and they have added that up to conclude, well, he never will return. This isn't going to happen. So let's just live however we want to live. And as I say, maybe your internal calculations are doing something similar. Okay, if you're not yet a Christian, maybe like them, you are counting all the years since Jesus was alive and you are adding that up to equal his non-existence. Or as a reason to think that he doesn't have any claim on your life. Or maybe, you know, Christian or not, maybe you count the shortness of your life and you add that up to YOLO. Hey, you only live once, so live for pleasure, live for the thrills, live for the next great experience, or for my comfort. But whatever you do, you add it up to live for yourself. And that, says Peter, is to count wrongly. Instead, as we wait for the new heavens and the new earth, he says we should count God's patience, the days that are given to us, as salvation. That if you're not yet a Christian, he is giving you time to become one. And for those of us who are, we should also count them as days of salvation, days when the Holy Spirit is at work in people's lives, drawing them to himself. Days for sharing the good news of Christ and for spreading the gospel. And we're going to have, you know, we're going to have ample opportunity to do that in the next few weeks. You know, so ladies, count the days. Maybe even this week, count the days as days when you could invite a friend to your event next Sunday. For the rest of us, count the days as we look forward to Advent and all the guest services we're going to be putting on, what better time to be befriending people, to be getting to know your neighbour than in these days of salvation? Okay, but then Peter makes what seems on the surface to be a surprising turn, okay, an odd turn, verses 15 to 16. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now, why bring up Paul? Well, probably because the false teachers have been using and maybe even quoting Paul's teaching that we have been saved by grace and not by obeying the law and then saying, so there you go, Paul is on our side. You know, Peter's telling you, live this life of virtue. But Paul says, hey, you can live however you want to live and God will still love you. And in response, Peter is saying, no, Okay, look at Paul's letters where he speaks about these things, like Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We're saying the same things, Peter says. God's grace is a reason to repent It's a reason to live lives of holiness, not carelessness. Okay, but then look how Peter describes Paul, our beloved brother Paul. So it's not just that we say the same things, Peter says, it is that we are on the same side. 
And of course, there is at least one occasion when it appeared that that was maybe not the case, isn't it? it, it so uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul describes having to rebuke Peter for not eating with the Gentile Christians. And, you know, academics have uh, taken that, liberal academics have taken that and argued that, oh, well, there you are. You've got this big, two different Christianities. You know, Peter, Paul, they're preaching two different gospels. They're, you know, opposed to each other. And it's just the church that has elevated Paul above Peter. And yet the whole point of that dust up, that bust up, was their theology, Peter and Paul's theology, and their family. One church of Jew and Gentile together was the same. And Paul was calling Peter to live that out. Now, some months back, I, um, I said something to Tom about uh, what people thought about me. And uh, Tom replied, hey, come on. You, you regularly preach about not basing your identity on what people think about you. But that is exactly what you're doing now. You need to listen to your own sermons. And he's right. Okay, but did his calling me out mean that we weren't brothers? Or that we preach a different gospel? It's the opposite, isn't it? And Paul was that to Peter, encouraging him to live out the gospel that they agreed on in every area of his life. Hey, we all need brothers and sisters like that. So whether it is Peter or Paul, whether you are Christian yet or not, Peter's saying these are days of salvation. These are days when we should live out the implications of the gospel in every area of our lives, and we should count them like that. But of course, the fact that Paul was a dear brother doesn't mean that everything he wrote was easy to understand, does it? Okay, so be diligent, count, and thirdly, take care. Take care. Verse 16. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Okay, so if you have ever sat down and read one of Paul's letters, and it has taken mental effort, and you have been sat there thinking, what is he saying? Peter is saying, you are not alone. Okay, I know what that feels like. But to find something the Bible says hard to understand is not the same as twisting it. Or to read some part of the Bible and think, man, I find this difficult to accept. Or even, I don't like this. That is not the same as twisting it. To twist scripture is to take what is written and to try and make it mean something it doesn't, or to make it mean the opposite of what it clearly does mean, not least when you want to make it agree with what you already think. And Peter says when people do that, they are doing it to their own destruction. Strong words. So why? Well, firstly, because the Bible's authoritative. 
You see, when Peter talks of the scriptures, he's using a technical word that the New Testament writers used for the Old Testament. And back in chapter one, Peter said that the Old Testament was written as the writers spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Old Testament is not just ancient writings full of wisdom where you could gain some insight and some life principles. They are God's word. Peter says. And here, Peter groups Paul's letters with those Old Testament writings. And he says that Paul wrote them, verse 15, with the wisdom given him. In other words, God was speaking through Paul just as he has spoken through the Old Testament. And of course, the church came to realize that exactly the same was true for Peter. In fact, Peter probably realized that himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't be making these authoritative statements. And so to read what God says, what God says, and then twist it so that it says something that we want it to say, so that it says something that's more in keeping with our current culture, so that it fits in more with the way I see the world. Peter is saying that is never a good idea whether it's human sexuality or the differences between men and women or our attitude to money or the issue of personal freedom, God's word should have authority over you, not you over it, Peter's saying. The way you handle the Bible matters and it matters eternally. So secondly, it's not just authoritative. It's authoritative in the very areas that may be challenging you, where it's confronting you, which is why you might be wanting to try and make it say something different than it actually says. And when that is to do with our sin, that puts the person on a dangerous, destructive trajectory, Peter is saying, which is why he says, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In other words, hey, you know that this is how other people treat God's word, but not you. You are beloved by God. You are God's beloved child. So love to hear your father's voice speaking to you from his word. Even the hard bits, even the bits that challenge you. You are his beloved child, so what he writes is his best for you. Now, after all all this rain that we have been having, I don't know if you've seen them, but the rivers are like torrents. And, you know, either now or in the past, you've probably seen videos of floodwaters ripping up trees and carrying off cars and destroying buildings. Interesting, that's the image that Paul, that Peter is using for people being carried away with error and twisting the Bible. And, you, I mean, there is a long and sorry history of people doing this, isn't there? There's a long and sorry history of people abandoning the faith or making the Bible say the opposite of what it says. And you probably experience that. You probably experience uh, this, this torrent of error, maybe amongst your friends on campus or in the workplace and the pressure 
they, you might feel from them. You may experience it in the teaching of somebody in the church, other churches, outside the church, or what you see online. And Peter is saying, take care. Don't say, which is, which is not, to take care is the opposite. Say, oh, this is not going to happen to me. I, I, I don't need to worry about this. I, I, I can, you know, mind to, I, can, I can interpret this the way I want to. Peter's saying, no, take care. Don't think this won't happen to me. And instead, climb onto the rock that is higher than the flood, that the torrent will never budge, and plant your feet on the authority of God's word and be stable. So be diligent, count, take care, and fourthly, finally, grow. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, Peter began this letter by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he begins with grace and he ends with grace. Because while we are to be diligent and to count, and to take care. If we do that out of anxiety or fear or guilt, we'll never do it. Or if we do try and do it, we won't have any joy about doing it. It'll all be do, 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 do. But when you know that God is full of grace and that far from him being a hard taskmaster who is trying to ruin your life, when you know he is more kind and more loving and more merciful and more gracious than you could ever imagine or deserve, you will want to be diligent. You'll want to count your days right. You'll want to take care. Because what child who knows that his father loves him doesn't want to please his father? You see, God's grace is not some abstract theological concept. Instead, Peter says, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. What does Jesus' grace to you look like? It's the grace that meant he was willing to give up his eternal security and comfort and to enter our days so they might become for us days of salvation not condemnation. It's the grace that was willing to be the spotless and blameless sacrifice for you, to bear your sin, to bear your shame, so that you might bear his righteousness. It's the grace that was willing to be carried away by the raging torrent of God's wrath against your sin, so that you might stand safe upon his rock. Grow in your knowledge and your experience of that grace, Peter says. And as you do, verse 18, to him, to Jesus, be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. See, the truth is, we all spend our lives making something look glorious. We all spend our lives making something look big. Could be you, could be your problems, could be your grievances. 
could be your family, could be your career, could be your stuff, it could be the climate, it could be politics. Each one of those, in one way or another, misses the point. Because eternity and the new heavens and the new earth that we are waiting for will be all about making much about Jesus. And Peter is saying, as you wait for that day, don't make much about yourself. Don't make much about your grievances. Don't make much about your career or even your family, all these good things. As you wait for that day, make much about Christ. Start as you mean to go on. Let's pray.